0: Hey man, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 12. Hebrews chapter number 12. I hope that, as I mentioned earlier, you've had a great week this week, and I'm going to have a great week this week. And so I'm going to have a great week because the temperatures at night are going to get under 70 degrees. Uh, And so that's always the first hope of the end of summer. And so um, I despise the summertime I just I just I don't I don't have no I have no love zero love for the summertime especially here maybe I'd feel differently about it if I lived in Canada uh, but here uh, and so you can have all of the your summer and mine too and so uh, I'll take the spring and the fall uh, and and uh, get a fall get along just fine in the wintertime. but the thought of a 60 degree temperature or an overnight low is Is uh, that's shouting ground, brother, and so I'll take it, and so, but I hope that you will be able to enjoy it, if you get to be off from work tomorrow, I hope you're able to enjoy that, spend some time with family as well, and so if you found your place there, Hebrews chapter number 12, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 14, the Bible says, follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, Look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully. With tears, I want to speak to you this morning on this thought, keeping the bitter from turning to bitterness. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for, again, the time that we have to gather in your name. Lord, if we refuse to open our hearts to your word, it's, nothing's going to be accomplished. And Holy Spirit, if you fail to meet with us, then likewise. Lord, if you're here to speak and we're here with an open heart to listen, to receive. Lord, lives could be changed each and every time that the word of God is preached, no matter where it is. Lord, I pray that you do that for us today. I pray that you would give me direction, help me to say the things that need to be said. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to receive those things, protect protect me from saying anything that need not be said. Lord, I pray that hearts will be worked on today, that we would be, Lord, reminded of some things that'll help us to stay on course for you. In Jesus' name, and amen. I'm going to say this morning as we start that I already know before I start preaching this message this morning that there is a large number of people in our church that are going through things that I'm going to probably mention in some way, shape, or form today. Um, I gave the message to Brother Trevon at the end of June to be preached the first Sunday in July. And God just has not let me preach it. Now, part of the reason he didn't let me preach it is because I was laying the flat on my back in bed at home with COVID-19. But he hasn't let me preach it since then either. Uh, and I've just struggled with it, to be honest with you. I've been struggled about the timing of it. I've been struggled about uh, how to approach these things. My intent this morning is to deal with a broad subject. And a subject that all of us, that it makes an impact on all of us. I look around the room this morning, and there are a number of people that are going through a bitter time, or have something that's very bitter in your life right now. I I understand. And so it'll be easy for you to take this as pastors picking on me today. Uh, But I promise you that I'm not. I do want to help you. I want to help God's people. I want God to help our church. Uh, and uh, to be an encouragement. And you can, you can leave today. Well, I think this. I think that it's fair for me to say that when you leave today, you're either going to be very angry at me or you're going to be very grateful that God spoke to your heart. Um, and so, and I'm not saying I'm going to peel the paint off the walls and preach a harsh or preach it in a hard way. I don't think I will. But I do think that this hits very close to home to all of us, some of us now, to all of us at some point in our life. There's no one that escapes what I'm preaching today, ever. There's not one soul that's ever lived, even Jesus, that didn't have to do and deal with what I'm going to talk to you about today. When we look at keeping the bitter from turning to bitterness, I want to give you just a contrast as we begin this morning. Adolf Hitler was born in the late 1800s, about 1880 some odd year, uh, in Austria, He was born to hardworking parents, but his parents died when he was young. His father died first, and then a few years later, his mother died. And he aspired to be an artist. It's a far cry from how history has recorded him now, but his aspiration was to become an artist, and he struggled in Vienna for a number of years. He became, during that time, a very avid reader, and whenever the First World War came around, he worked out some agreement with the Belgian army to join their army, and he fought valiantly in World War I. He fought bravely. Matter of fact, uh, he, he won or was awarded um, uh, whatever that nation's award for almost their highest honor, similar to our probably Navy Cross or uh, almost a Medal of Honor. He wore that for the rest of his life even in Germany and in civilian life. But Adolf Hitler had to deal with things that were bitter. The loss of dad early in his life was a bitter thing. The loss of his mother when he was still a young man was a bitter thing. The dealing with struggling to make ends meet as a young artist in an apartment in the uh, the city was a bitter thing at times. He became an avid reader. He also became someone after the war that, or during the war, that suffered wounds. He was wounded twice in the years that he fought in World War One. He took shrapnel to one leg, uh, to which he healed from, recovered, and went back into battle. And then uh, he suffered a gas attack and survived a gas attack. He was in the hospital recovering from that gas attack at the end as the armistice for World War One was signed. Afterward, he uh, began to become more interested in politics. But the driving force in his life was the fact that he did not perceive Germany to have been defeated by the allies. He perceived that Germany was defeated because of the betrayal of the German people. And he became very angry and very bitter at his fellow countrymen. And his political ideology was shaped by his reading and by his bitterness to those that he felt betrayed the nation. Most German people, I think, at that time were, grew embittered by the sanctions that were placed upon them by the rest of the world after World War I. The reparations that they had to pay, the, uh, the, the restrictions on their ability to rebuild their military, which obviously they violated. Uh, those things they perceived to be very oppressive, and it played into Hitler's hand to be able to rise to power. I would say this morning, because a man named Adolf Hitler had bitter things in his life that he did not deal with properly, and he allowed those things to turn into and to grow into bitterness, that six plus million Jews were murdered, and another five to six million people of other ethnicities and age groups, that's the part in history that's often not talked about. But I do not exaggerate the numbers at all. If anything, I conservatively say this morning that at least 10 million people died at the hand of Hitler besides the soldiers that fought in the war because one man was bitter. There's another young man who was born quite some time before Adolf Hitler who served as our 16th president. A man who also knew what it was to endure bitter things in his life. Abraham Lincoln was born in poverty in northern Kentucky. He lived a very difficult existence. As a young man, he aspired to become more than what he was born to be, and he uh, taught himself to be a lawyer. He entered politics, and he ran race after race after race, only to suffer defeat and humiliation. I don't know that it's completely accurate to say, but I do believe I know it's accurate to say that the presidency may be the only, office, the only election that he ever won. He may have won one or two others before that. But for the most part, almost everything that he tried to do failed. Bitter things. When he won the White House and he went in, his winning of the election caused such an uproar amongst the country that we were set on course for a civil war not dissimilar to the course that our nation seems to be on today. And when we look at history and we see what he had to endure, we also can can look and see that he suffered the loss of a young child as he served as our president. A bitter thing. We know that his life was taken by an assassin's bullet. I've been in the theater, I've, I've walked up to the chair that he was sitting in whenever... John Wilkes Booth pulled the trigger and shot him in the back of the head at Ford Theater. I've been across the street into the house that they carried him to whenever he was wounded and they took him up the stairs, narrow stairs, and they put him a six foot foot four frame on a a bed that was several inches too short to hold his body. I've seen the bloodstains on his clothing that he was wearing that day and on the sheets that are still there. If you go to Washington, D.C., you can go there. The Clothing or on a mannequin in the museum in the bottom of Ford's theater and the house that he was taken to is a museum as well and everything is as it was. But that's not the first time that someone tried to kill him. And you know, history's changed so much now and our system is so different now that it's hard for us to relate to how things were in the mid-1800s. But in 1860, if you wanted to have a conversation with the President of the United States, you could simply walk up and knock on the door of the White House. And just things have changed so much in my lifetime. I remember whenever I was... Uh, in the military in Washington, D.C., that if I wanted to go to the Capitol building, I didn't have to wait in line, and there was no underground bunker in the street between the Capitol and the Supreme Court that you had to get tickets to. Uh, when I wanted to take someone, I didn't even wait in line uh, uh, for the tour that was up the stairs into the main rotunda. Uh, I grabbed someone and took them down to the basement, and we went in through uh, more official entrances and went through metal detectors there and kind of went the back stairs up, and I gave him my own tour. You didn't have to deal with all of that stuff. And back in 1860, if you wanted to talk to Mr. Lincoln, you could literally walk up. There were no gates to the the White House, and you could knock on the door. And if he was willing to entertain your conversation, uh, you could have the conversation. So in our mind, for a president to go somewhere unattended is very difficult for us to comprehend. But the reality is that there were many occasions in which Abraham Lincoln uh, got on the back of a horse and went out countryside alone as president. On one such occasion, he came back and he had been shot at on the way. And when he got back, uh, he, or when his top hat was found, his famous top hat, it had a bullet hole in it. He narrowly escaped. He knew that the stand that he took was going to lead to war, but it was a, that, a fight that had to be made. And as he fought it, and I've been, I've been to, we, Sonia and I, when we were first married, lived in Hagerstown, Maryland, which is the site of Antietam Battlefield. It's the bloodiest battle of the Civil War. We've walked across those battlefields and seen the monuments and graves and uh, it's sacred, hallowed ground. And, uh, and oddly enough, no one has to be reminded of that when you're there. There's just a holy hush that falls over such a place. Because many people there endured things that were bitter. You understand the bitterness in our country at that time was so great that I've, I've been to Lincoln's gravesite site and... Springfield, Illinois, I'm sure the Bartlett's have been there many times, and uh, they had to build a big concrete encasement and tomb over it because people, for decades after, still tried to steal his body. When they first brought it, they put him in a basin guarded uh, at the bottom of the hill. Then they had to put him in a hidden unmarked grave because they continually wanted to steal his body because the hatred toward the man was so great. He endured throughout his life bitter things. But unlike Hitler, he did not allow those bitter things to turn to bitterness. He maintained a spirit of integrity and a Christian spirit. He was someone that we can look back to and revere as one of our greatest presidents. The reality this morning is that bitter things cannot be prevented. Every person here is going to go through something in their life many times over many different things that are bitter i remember being excited the first time uh, that Sonia and i found out that we were going to be parents only to endure the bitterness of a miscarriage about five months later and to repeat that process two more times before we finally had a healthy child a bitter thing i remember vaguely not Uh, I was too young to remember it well, but I remember the the stress and the heartache in the house whenever my 20-year-old uncle drowned and it took four days to find his body. I remember the anguish three years later when my grandfather died of a heart attack suddenly in the backyard, basically having grieved himself to death over the loss of his only son. I can look at every person here this morning and I can say to you, Without a doubt and without exception. That if you live on this earth, you are going to have to endure something in your life that's bitter. A bitter thing. A bitter thing is not something, it can be any manner of things. And that's why I say this morning that I want to preach this with a very broad brush. But every person's life is going to be littered with bitter moments, an illness, the loss of a job, the destruction of a family, the loss of a loved one, disappointment. These are examples of bitter things. But what does the Bible say about bitter things? In James chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4, uh, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Temptations here not meaning the temptation to do evil, but a test of the faith. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith, and there's the definition for the temptation there, worketh patience. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18, he tells us, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Pastor, why would it be the will of God for me to go through something that's bitter? Well, sometimes we go through bitter things at our own hand. Sometimes we go through bitter things because of decisions that we've made. Sometimes we're simply reaping what we've sown. Sometimes God chooses bitter things for us because he knows that if we respond correctly, he can grow us and he can use that in our lives to edify the life of another. The word bitter, when we talk about bitterness, it's important that we understand what we're talking about. Something that's bitter is defined this way. It's something that's sharp. It's something that's cruel. It's something that's severe, piercing, painful to the mind. It is affliction. It is distress. It's something that's hurtful. All of us, I think, if we'll be honest, can look and point probably in our minds right now and say, yeah, I'm either going through or I have vivid memories of having gone through something pastor that meets that criteria I've been through something that's bitter The reality is is that bitter things left to themselves turn to bitterness Ruth chapter 1 and verses 19 through 21 recall the story of Naomi coming home after her sojourning from a drought with her family in Moab and she said call me Mara or call me bitter They greeted her by how she was known before she left, and she rebuked them, essentially her townspeople, saying, don't call me that, call me bitter. I have left out full, but I've come back empty. If you remember the story, she with her husband Abimelech left Israel and went to Moab to flee from a drought. What many people don't know if you do more in-depth study of that passage what you find out and what's evidenced by the fact that she was greeted by the townspeople as she returned is that they weren't just the ordinary average family from Israel they in fact were wealthy landowners which is demonstrated throughout the book of Ruth as well. They were some they were people that have were of Uh, importance they were people he was a man who would sit at the gate in other words he was a governing official uh, of their city and and as they left they left not because they had to leave they left because they just simply wanted to be able to maintain their lifestyle and they had an opportunity after a while to return home and chose to stay in Moab in other words they chose the things of the world over their relationship with God Her husband would die. Her sons who married the wives of kings of Moab, again pointing to their significance of their standing in the culture. Her boys would die. Only one of two daughters-in-law would remain loyal, though she tried to get both of them to go. She understood what she was saying when she said, I have been through bitter things. Clearly, as you study the book, you see that God brought her on a journey that delivered her from bitterness. So what's the difference, pastor? What's the difference between that which is bitter and that which becomes bitterness? Well, bitterness means this. Extreme enmity. It is when that bitter thing has gone from something that is just hurting me to something that I loathe, to something that I am... am, uh, Grudge. I'm, I'm going to have a grudge toward or a hatred for. It means by definition an excessive degree of implacableness. Implacableness is not a word that we often use. It means uh, the quality of not being appeasable. If you can call that a quality. It is to have an irreconcilable mindset. In other words, if I uh, were to uh, approach Alec about Uh, some sin in his life, something that he came to me about, and I said, okay, let's deal with this thing. Uh, And we get to the point where, okay, you've got to make a decision about what you're going to do with God, and your spirit and your attitude is, I'm not going to reconcile. I don't want to be right with God. Irreconcilable. So when our spirit and our, uh, our attitude becomes irreconcilable, uh, and it's and so it's it's this. It is an excessive degree of implacableness or unappeasableness of passions and emotions within us. It is a keenness of of reproach and unwillingness to put something behind us, to forgive or to pardon. Now I'm going to give you three things here that we're commanded to do in Scripture in regards to preventing that which is bitter to becoming bitterness. This is not the message, this is still, uh, or it is the message, it's, not, it's, it's the introduction. We're still not to the points here. And I'm, I'm, I'm again, there are some things here uh, that if you're going through a bitter time right now, you're going to feel like pastor's picking on me, but I'm going to say this. Whether your bitter thing this morning has to do with your relationship with another person or whether it has to do with, say, you've got a disease. Be careful that you don't become angry at God. Three years ago, we all went through Harvey. Ten of us had severe damage to our home. Everything that side of the stairs where the stuff is stored was underwater here at the church. Everything had to be rebuilt at least four of us had to leave our neighborhoods by boat the Parsons had to leave by boat, we had to leave by boat, the Grants had to leave by boat uh, the Brother Lynn and Jan had to leave by boat, and I'm not sure that that's everybody that had to leave by boat, but we know what it's like to go through what this dear family is suffering through uh, over these last couple of weeks and still months to come it's a bitter thing it would have been easy at that point in time to become, God why me? God, why did this happen? Uh, quite honestly, uh, it would have been pretty easy about a month and a half ago for me to lean about three weeks into a fever, uh, to, to, or for my wife at least to look and say, God, what's going to happen and why, why do I have to go through this? And I didn't find this out until later, but uh, my wife showed me a picture yesterday. She said, on this particular day, we weren't sure whether you were going to turn around or continue to get worse. And they were actually starting to have discussions about what if I don't make it. And I didn't have to go to the hospital. I was close, but I didn't have to go. But I was very gray, very ashen, and, uh, and just not, probably just anemic, but just, just not, uh, and they began to kind of have, it would have been easy to have an attitude and a spirit of, uh, God, how could you let this happen? And I don't think that uh, those of you that I know, most of you I know well enough that I would never think that you would say in your heart, and I don't think, that, I hope that I would never say, uh, you know, God, how dare you? But yet by our response, many times we do say, God, how dare you? And so when we talk about here coping and dealing with, you uh, may have to reconcile in your heart this morning that these three things that I give you about forgiveness may apply to someone in your life, but they also may apply to your relationship with God. They may apply to your you yourself, your relationship to yourself, how you perceive yourself, how you deal with yourself, how you uh, immerse these things in your own life. And I would say uh, this, and we see it in Matthew chapter number 6, and we see it in Luke chapter number 17, and we're going to look at... Uh, at Luke 17 and I'm not even going to read all the verses I think that I just uh, really used them and, and referenced them in a message not long ago uh, but we're going to read a couple of them and I think most of you will know the Bible well enough uh, that it will be familiar enough to you that you'll uh, that you'll understand uh, but Luke 17 verses 3 and 4 uh, take heed to yourselves if they uh, if, a, if thy brother trespass against thee rebuke him and if he repent forgive him and if he trespass against thee uh, seven times in a day And seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Uh, In verse 5, and the apostle said unto the Lord, increase our faith. This is a matter of faith. This is not a matter of emotion. So it's important for me as a pastor to teach us all how to deal with things that we have to deal with in our life biblically. Not according to the culture, not according to our feeling, not according to our, uh, what, what the norms of society are, but what does God say? And whenever we have bitter things in our life, the first thing that we're commanded to do is to forgive. So what does that mean? Oh, well, we get some level of it, but what does forgiveness mean? Well, uh, forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. Salvation faith is not Uh, A choice is something that God does in us. God has to give me the faith to trust Jesus as my Savior. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I can't just wake up one day and say, okay, today I believe. The the faith is the evidence of things not seen. There's got to be a coming to that evidence and the convincing of my spirit. And so I'm going to say a lot of things today uh, that I say realizing, and I hope you realize, that just simply making the decision doesn't mean that I'm there. There's a process. There's a battle that has to be raged within my own heart and my own mind. And I'm going to have days in which I suffer defeat. There are going to be some days, uh, Lord willing, if I stay uh, right with the Lord and walk with the Lord, that he's going to give me great victory. But forgiveness uh, is something that I must choose to do. And forgiveness is something that must be done completely. Now, def- de- let's define forgiveness. Because I don't want to to define forgiveness by what I think it is. But let's look at the definition of the word. It is the act of forgiving. It is to pardon an offender by which he is considered and treated as not guilty. Doesn't mean he's not guilty. It means he's treated as not guilty. I'm glad that God treats me like I'm not guilty. The word pardon means forgiveness, the release of an offender... And the obligation of the offender to suffer a penalty, or uh, the the displeasure uh, of uh, to bend to the disple- displeasure of an offended party, and, in other words, this: Frankie wrongs me. I go to Frankie and point it out. Frankie says he's sorry. I go to him again. He says it, he does it again, and we go through this many times over. We all have relationships like that in our life sometimes. I have to, by biblically, keep forgiving. Practically, what I want to do is choke them. <laughs> I want to uh, get out of this cycle, right? So I come and I go through the process. It, it, I, I have to let go. I have to come to a point where forgiveness is a pardon. doesn't mean that you're not guilty. Does it, it has to do with how I treat you. Now, that's, that's, that's impossible. Just to be quite honest with you, in some circumstances, that is, very, that is a human impossibility. So, if it's a human impossibility, but it's a command of God, how is it possible? And I'm going to give you some principles this morning That will not have you walk out the doors and be alleviated from the bonds of bitterness. But they could put you on a course where you could fight a battle in your own heart and mind with God's help and win that. Bitterness is a hard thing. I shared in the first service this morning, a few years ago, Sonia and I are not people that have uh, what we would call a green thumb. I mean, it, really, up until up until a few years ago, uh, I remember maybe one or two plants that my wife ever had that lived for longer than about six weeks. Uh, and so, uh, and it was just a very unforgiving ivy, and we had that thing for years and years. I don't even remember why she finally got rid of it, uh, but it didn't die. She gave it away. But beyond that, it just things die. Uh, she's doing great this year. She has a poinsettia that was given to her last year. The first time that, that she watched Jackson overnight, Jason and Aaron brought her a poinsettia, and it actually is regrown leaves. She's so excited. Uh, when we came here, the ladies in the church, not long after we came, gave her a Christmas cactus, and that thing has just gotten so big. And, uh, and then, you know, other things don't turn out so well. Brother Buck and Miss Lila gave her a, a, a beautiful palm tree in the house. I think it made it about six months. Uh, I got her another one about... A couple of months ago, and then she repotted it last week, uh, and it's already turning yellow. And so we just, we don't necessarily do well with some of these things. So we decided, uh, since we're so great at growing things, that we would have a little garden out in our backyard, which is very small. So I uh, built a couple of boxes out of 2x12s, and we have commenced for the last three years or so to plant a little garden. Well, last year, at the end of the year, I really, to be honest, I was just kind of tired of dealing with it. I was tired of going out and watering it. I picked out the stuff that had quit producing and mulched it up with a mower and... Uh, there were a couple pepper plants that were going, and, uh, and um, you know, I, I think I waited till the spring even to pluck them out and get rid of them. Uh, they'd kind of taken over everything. Uh, and, you know, I didn't keep up with the weeding. And so when I went to go this spring to plant, uh, say this spring, is probably the end of February or maybe the first week of March, uh, I noticed that my box didn't just have a few weeds here and there. It had completely been overgrown with all kinds of stuff. And they were well established and that, you know how it is in that time of the year. Uh, it's all the stuff that you don't want that grows great early. Uh, and so I got out there and I got ready and so I took my uh, I, I took my little tool. I have a little thing called a garden weasel. It's got these spiny things on the end and it'll rip the ground up just in a heartbeat. And it, makes, it makes getting the ground tilled up in that box really easy. Uh, and so I went out there and I started pulling those weeds up and Man, when I pulled those weeds up, there was just big clobs of dirt that came with it because the whole root system was coming up. And I I intentionally so. I mean, I was trying to get a good grip on the stem of that thing because I wanted all the roots out of there. I didn't want to be fighting this battle all year long. Uh, And so I get it. Now, if you've ever built a box like that, then you've learned that the lumber is not the most expensive thing that you put in the box. The most expensive thing that you put in the box is the dirt to fill it up. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm conserving dirt. I'm taking that clump of roots and I'm banging it on every... I'm trying to get every little grain of soil that I can back in my box. You know, by the time I got done, there was so much damage to the front, top layer of that soil that, Brother Buck, I barely even had to use that garden weasel to get it ready to plant this year's crop. Because that's what root systems do. It's the danger of the bitter thing. The bitter thing is going to come. The bitter thing is going to hurt. The bitter thing is going to be destructive. But not nearly as destructive as it's going to be when you deal with it. If you allow it to turn to bitterness. When the whole root system has to come up. And and here's here's the worst part. The worst part, Brother Dick, is not how much it hurts me. The worst part is how much it hurts everyone else in my life. Take you back to the beginning of the message this morning, Adolf Hitler. Do you realize that one man's bitterness in his case cost over 10 million people their lives? And when we look at the destructive power of sin in our lives, then we have to realize that I cannot allow this to go on and not deal with it. So where does that leave us this morning? I have three thoughts for you this morning. I realized the hour, this is about where, where I was at this time in the message in the first service. It's so a lot of introduction and just real fast the principles that go with it. But I want you to consider this morning, look back in our text now. In Hebrews chapter number 12, follow peace, verse 14, with all men. So what is this text telling me to do? To follow peace with all men. That means all men. That means everyone in my life, whether it be my children, whether it be my spouse, whether it be my boss at work, whether it be my employees, whether it be my re- distant relatives. No matter who it is, no matter where it is, follow peace with all men. My obligation, my command from God is to live peaceably with all men. Then he tells me how to do it and holiness. Follow peace with all men and holiness. I'm following peace. I'm following holiness. It is the empowerment and the grace of God that makes me able to follow peace. I can't do it. I cannot, on my own accord, handle that without which no man shall see the Lord. So he's telling us here I cannot successfully navigate bitter things if I am not following and seeking peace and holiness. If I'm not letting God live through me, I cannot do it. I will fail. Verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. In other words, if I'm not seeking to do things God's way, then God's grace is going to be withdrawn. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about God's guidance and God's direction and God's working in the life. We're talking about relationship not uh, not uh, the salvation relationship, but the daily relationship. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. This is not contained into me myself, this is to go for others. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person. The word profane here is interesting. Uh, the word profane here means this. It is To be irreverent to anything that's sacred. I'm going to give you the definition and I'm going to put it in its contextual use here. To To be irreverent of anything sacred. To be irreverent of anything that's proceeding from a contempt of a sacred thing. It is to pollute or to be not pure. And it's chiefly used in the scriptures in opposition to holiness. So when you see the word profane used in the Bible, almost always what it's used in its purpose of use is to, uh, to, to demonstrate an opposition to holiness. So notice now what he's, what he's, how he's using it here. Uh, any profane person, and then he gives an example, as Esau. So we're talking about Esau now. Who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing... He was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. So what's going on here? Esau uh, sells his birthright. He's a young man. Uh, He's a foolish young man. He does not value that which is sacred and holy. The birthright was a very sacred and holy thing to them. uh, And it was something that should have been held in very high regard. It was that the oldest child, the oldest boy, got a double portion. So when inheritance came, he got twice what everybody else did. But he also had the responsibility of the household and the family uh, and and perpetuating what God had done uh, in their lives to that point. And he despised that. The Bible says that in another passage, uses the word despise he despised his birthright and he was he was hungry I mean like hungry as in I've been out all day and I haven't eaten I'm I'm feel like I'm starving to death but he wasn't really in any danger of starving to death you understand what I mean we've all been there Uh, you get to the end of the day you've been busy you haven't eaten you've forgotten to eat and you just feel like your insides are turning out and they're going to eat you if you don't feed them soon but you're in no danger of physical demise that's that's where he was And he had such little regard for this holy thing, this sacred thing of his birthright, that he was willing to just throw it away for a bowl of soup. Now later in his life, he was deceived by his mother and his brother for his blessing. The blessing is something that at the end of life, the patriarch would call the children in and he would pronounce a blessing on them. And essentially what he's doing is he's assigning responsibility and telling them what God is going to do for them uh, in return. He was deceived out of that. Can't find any blame to lay on Esau for that, but he did despise his birthright. But he wanted it back. I mean, how many of us have not had something in our life that we look at and we say, Lord, I did this, this, and this, and it's gone, but I sure would like to have that one back. And he sought it carefully with tears. Now, I want to correct my own, I had to correct my own thinking about uh, how the word repentance is used here, because I've always just kind of looked at this passage, um, and I guess this just kind of shows my own ignorance, uh, as, as I've read it. I've always just kind of looked at it like Esau really wanted to get right with God, but it had moved past him. The opportunity to get right with God had moved past him. And, uh, and though he was trying with tears to come back to the Lord, God wouldn't let him. He had kind of like just lost that. The Holy Spirit had kind of shut down. By the way, that can't happen in your life. But that's not really the context here. The context here is that he wanted his authority to change his mind. His father had the authority to reverse the order. His father, in his at least in his mind, was the one that could have set this back right. You can give me the blessing. I was deceived out of this. I was tricked out of this. And the reality is, is that. You know, when we have hard things in life, we always want to blame somebody. We seldom do we want to take responsibility. Uh, We want to blame someone else for what's going on. Or uh, we want to take uh, a Bible truth and we want to weaponize it so that we can manipulate somebody to do what we think they should do. Which only fosters more bitterness, by the way. (coughs) So... And what I mean by that is this, and it's an important point to make. So, you know, if I come in and, uh, and again, Frankie and I uh, have a problem, I'm picking on Frankie. We had lunch on Friday. We don't have any problems. And so I'm going to pick on Frankie, uh, and I come into Frankie, and we've been having this ongoing issue, and I come at him. Uh, and I uh, take some Bible verses and I throw those Bible verses at him, not because I'm sincerely trying to edify him and to teach him and to grow him, but because I'm trying to coerce or manipulate him to do what I want him to do or what I think I need him to do, then I am misusing the Bible and all I'm doing is driving a deeper wedge between us and causing more bitterness in his heart. A lot of times, Spouses use the Bible against each other that way. Children use the Bible against their parents that way. Uh, pastors abuse their authority and use the Bible that way from the pulpit. Uh, a lot of times you see, and, and it's, it's a world in which, uh, which no one wins and God is not pleased. So now what do I do, pastor? I, I, I'm dealing with this bitter thing. I don't want it to become bitterness in my life. How is it possible you've already said that I can't do it in and of myself? Three thoughts this morning. Number one, give every bitter thing to God. Give every bitter thing to God. You can't carry it. It's too heavy. You can't deal with it. It's too hard. Give every bitter thing to God. Now, how do I do that? Well, I'm going to give you just two thoughts after each main point to kind of demonstrate how to get on the right course to to actually doing what the original statement is. Give every bitter thing to God. The first thing that I would say is you must cast your burden upon the Lord. Psalm 55, uh, I believe verse 12 or 22 says, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee." Give it to God. And Listen, that sounds really easy, but it's not. I've dealt with some bitter things in my own life. It's, not, it's easy to say this is what you do. It's hard to actually see it through and do it. And you typically don't just do it one time and everything is fixed. It's a repetitive process. I love Genesis. I believe it's chapter 13 where uh, Abraham is making a sacrifice. And in those days, they put the sacrifice on the altar and God sent fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. They didn't light it like they did in the tabernacle and had a continual fire burning of the God's presence established in the tabernacle. Uh, They waited and at one point, he's got his, his sacrifice on the altar and before God consumes it, the buzzards are coming and trying to eat the sacrifice that's laid out on the altar for God and he's literally there with a stick fighting the buzzards off of his sacrifice. Waiting for God to move. What I'm saying this morning is that as simple as this sound, the practically the, the, the doing of it practically is very difficult. But we must start by casting our burden upon the Lord and allowing him to sustain us. Now, how do I do that? Pastor, I've tried to pray and give it to God, and it's just like it's still just killing me. How do I do it? Die to self. It's a spirit filled Christian life. The Christian life is not complicated. The Christian life is not hard to understand. It's just hard to do. Because I always get in the way. Me. And I can tell you, I have been a senior pastor for 18 years. I have been in ministry for 23 plus years. And I have sat with people time and time again and I can tell you that the number one problem in almost every situation is me. It is dealing with situations where one or more people that are involved, regardless if it's two or ten, are not willing to die to self. It's about me. Most problems are petty and childish. Most problems could easily be handled if they were just one individual thing and not a bunch lumped together. But the real problem is when you sit down and try to work through a problem and all anybody cares about is themselves. Die to self. You want to give everything, bitter thing to God this morning? Realize that I must cast this burden upon God and in order to do that I must be dead to myself. If I'm dead, I can't be hurt. I can't be wounded. I remember going to a funeral home uh, about, oh, six months after I became a pastor. I had to do a couple of funerals, and one of them was very difficult because the guy literally shot himself in the head. And I had I got called out at like four in the morning after we had gotten home at one in the morning from taking our kids back to Tennessee to my mom's. Uh, and the sheriff's office called, and I had to go and mediate between um, a uh, the man and his ex-wife, lived, his ex-wife lived next door to him and his current wife, who with whom he had an affair with while he was married to the other one. And they claimed to be best of friends, but after he killed himself, they were no longer the best of friends, and I was caught in the middle. And I had to take my wife about 10 feet from this guy's corpse, leaning up against his body, and I had to go out there with a scrub brush and a water hose... Um, and decent clothes and scrub his brain matter off of the side of his house so his 10-year-old son who was inside wouldn't walk out and see it the first thing when he walked out the door. It's kind of a bitter thing. So I had to do that funeral, and then I had a funeral where the sweet lady in the church, her husband had cancer for a while, and he passed away, and she didn't have any money, and uh, the, the, the cemetery that they used was kind of out from the city. It was out in the country a little bit, and the funeral director wasn't real happy that they didn't have any money. Uh, and so he wouldn't turn the air conditioner on and it was summertime already. You're getting to be there. And so I think he turned the air conditioner on about 5 minutes before visitation and turned it off 5 minutes before it ended. And their son was in prison and so they had to bring him uh, you know with an escort to attend his father's funeral and uh, and I'm I'm walking by the casket and there's literally Flies crawling on this guy's face and in and out of his nose and ears. And you know, an amazing thing, Brother Buck? He never moved. I, I don't get it. I mean, I get a fly lens on my head and I'm swatting and brushing that thing away. He didn't move. And he didn't feel a thing. And that's a lot of years ago, and there's no one here connected to that scenario. But I'm just saying, if I'm dead, you can't offend me. If I, as a Christian, am what I'm supposed to be, you can't hurt me. You can't offend me. You can't hurt my walk with God. You can't. Now, I understand fully that that is very difficult. I don't know many Christians that reach that height of their Spirituality in their Christian life to be able to consistently do that. I still get offended sometimes. I still take some things personal sometimes. Sometimes uh, I'll get a text or a call and then I'm wrecked for the night. I can't sleep. And somebody will get upset about something, leave the church, and it's petty and childish, and they don't have all the facts and they're not willing to listen to them. It you know, keeps me up at night sometimes for uh, several days. So I understand, but I must be dead to self. Every Christian is commanded by God to be dead to themselves. And in order to do that, I have to give everything to God. And I have to let the Spirit of God live through me. By the way, that's the life that God envisioned for you when he saved you. Secondly this morning, gain from every bitter lesson. First, we give every bitter thing to God. Then we gain from every bitter lesson. Remember James chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Let God work in you. Gain from every bitter lesson. Why? Number one, because it's for your perfection. It is God trying to perfect you, to grow you, to mature you, And by the way, Romans 8.28 applies here. I'm not saying this morning that it's God's will for us to go out and sin so that he can grow us. But I am saying that when I love God and I do go out and sin, that God can take and use the recovery from that as an an avenue of maturing me. Give every bitter thing to God. Learn from, gain from every bitter lesson. It is for my perfection. Secondly, I would say that it is for your future use to edify others. It is for your future use to edify others. To take the failures that you've had in your life and the experiences that you've had in your life and the bitter things that you've had to deal with in your life to be able to help someone else in the body of believers that God has you not turn to go to bitterness when they have to deal with that bitter thing because you've dealt with it, you can help them. You can help cope with that. You can help edify them. And by the way, running uh, to uh, and and sharing what's going on and different things that you're dealing with, especially when they're personal in nature, to everybody around you is not edification. It's sowing discord. And it destroys the church and it exacerbates the problem. It doesn't help it. What I'm talking about here is we're here to edify one another. We're here to build one another up. We're here to be an encouragement. You know what this dear family needs this morning? They don't need every believer in the church going to them this morning and saying, you know, uh, you must have had some sin in your life and that's why this came. No, God causes us to rain on the just and the unjust. What they need is, you know, three years ago I was in the same boat that you were in and God brought me through it. And this is how God helped me and this is how God encouraged me and I'm going to pray for you. What we need is to edify one another, to have a spirit within the house of the Lord and with God's people to where we lift up one another and uh, the things of God. Let every gain from every bitter lesson. It's for my benefit, for the perfecting of my walk with God, and I can use it when God gives me victory over it to be a blessing to someone else. Lastly this morning, govern with every bitter thing behind you. Govern. With every bitter thing behind you, pastor, I'm not a governor. Oh, yes, you are. You govern your own life every day. You govern every thought, you govern every action, you govern every desire. And sometimes you govern it well, and sometimes we govern it poorly. Sometimes we win the victory, sometimes we suffer defeat, but it's governance. Governing our own spirit, our own body, our walk with God, our, our interpersonal relationships, uh, all of those things. Govern with every bitter thing behind you. Now I should have looked this verse up and I didn't. I believe that it, it, it I know it's in the writings of Paul, but he talks about that we fail because we become past feeling. In other words, we live in the past. We, we can't move beyond our past experiences. And sometimes, you know, that's somebody that's well into their adult life that had bad experiences as a child. You know, I, people uh, that suffered terrible things like molestation whenever they were children are going to, that's a bitter thing well Way onto in adulthood. It affects every relationship in their life. It affects their marriages. It affects their relationships with their own children. You understand this morning? Uh, there are so many. Uh, there's no way that I could spend a year and not cover everything here. What I'm trying to get across is just a principle that we all, as a church, need to learn to make a application to in many ways. And I, I think I shared this in the earlier service. But one of the one of the One of the great frustrations of a pastor is that I use a specific thing, Brother Buck, as an example and half the congregation can only use it as it pertains to the example that was given rather than lifting the principle and thinking analytically and making application to every area of their life. That's the goal here this morning, in case you're wondering. This is not, hey, pick up on the, the instance or the example that Pastor gave that pertains to me, and the message applies. No, this is take every hard thing in your life and make this application. Everything that comes our way. And if I'll do that, then I have to understand I cannot govern from yesterday. I have to take a bitter thing and conquer it before it takes root. Take that bitter thing. And our goal is to conquer it before it takes root. By the way, conquering infers a struggle. I mentioned Hitler at the beginning of the message. He rose to power in the 30s. He, and started, he began World War II in 1939. We tend to think as Americans that it started in 1941 because that's when we were drawn in by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, but World War II had been raging since 1939. And we did our best to stay out of it until we couldn't. And as it raged, a lot of ground was lost before ground began to be won back. And it wasn't until August of 1945 that it all came to an end. There was a long struggle before Hitler was conquered. And there very well may be a long struggle in your life before the bitter thing that is holding you chained and hostage today is conquered. People that struggle with addictions, and understand what I'm talking about. People that struggle with uh, all kinds of things in life understand this is a, uh, you know, childhood tragedies are things that impact us for potentially a lifetime conquer it before it takes root you make a mistake and you sin or you do something dumb and you can't go back and undo it or there's some other thing that comes up that's just a hard thing you've got cancer or you got a, had a heart attack or you had to have uh, bypass surgery or uh, you get the the covid virus or you get whatever it is that's a hard bitter thing conquer it before it takes root. Say, Pastor, all the praying in the world or all of the the coming to church in the world or trying to give it to God isn't going to necessarily heal me from some disease like that that's going to run its course. And especially when we realize that it very well may be the will of God that we have it so that he can be glorified in our death. So when I talk about that, I'm not talking about hey, just get this fixed and God's going to miraculously heal you. I'm talking about get this fixed so that it doesn't ruin your testimony, your walk with God and your spirit so God can use you and be glorified as he brings you into his presence. Win the victory. Win the battle. Conquer it before it takes root. You cannot undo the bitter thing, but you can prevent it from becoming and turning to bitterness. Then I would say, secondly, uh, about governance, influence. Others with the wisdom that you gain. Influence with the wisdom gained. How do I do that? By not bearing long-lasting effects. See, someone that is enthroned in bitterness is going to have long-lasting effects. It's going to be affecting their life for years to come. Someone that goes through something that's truly a bitter thing, but handles it biblically, and it doesn't become bitterness may have the memory of it, but they have the memory of it in the sense of this is what God did for me. This is how God used this in my life. This is how I've been able to be a blessing to others. This is what God has done to, this is how God restored me. This is how God put my relationships back together. This is how God, and you could go all down the list uh, and you could make application to anything that's going on that's bitter in your life right now uh, or tomorrow or a year from now, uh, and you could look at this and you could uh, and, and say, hey, this is what God has done. In other words, I'm not bearing any long-lasting effects. There may be some scars. If you look closely at my hand, I have a scar that the original wound goes to here and they had to cut up to here to find the nerve. And on this side, it comes all the way up here between the knuckles. Happened at work, worked in a meat packing plant and another college student standing across the table decided that when the roast was thrown up on the table and thrown too far, that he was going to try to spear it with his knife at the same time that I put my hand up to keep it from falling on the floor and being ruined. He caught the wrong piece of me. Completely severed the nerve into the middle part of the hand. God protected me by not losing any, uh, not causing any ligament or tendon damage. Had to go to surgery and they had to dig up in my hand to find the nerve so that they could take a microscope and try to match all the little points up. Took a while. I have no long-lasting effects as far as my range of motion, strength, mobility. But every time the weather changes, I get reminded that something happened there. There's a scar, for one. Guys like scars, that's not really a big deal, right? But that tingle up the middle of my finger where 50% of the feeling has gone from in the tip, that'll never come back, never be restored. Sometimes that gets a little tricky sometimes it causes a sudden sharp pain but it never lasts for very long and it usually is just about that quick and it's just oh hey you're there you're still there sometimes bitter things in our life can be that way there's going to be some scars and there's going to be some things to cope with there's going to be some things that may flare up from time to time but if i deal with it before it becomes a bitterness there doesn't have to be any long lasting effects the point is, am I going to be a person who wants to define my Christian life by the way of the world, by what everybody else thinks, or by what God says? God's blessing, God's empowerment comes from doing things his way. So I mentioned, I think, last week in the message. It's not a matter of interpreting the Bible according to the culture and the cultural norms of the day. It's about about examining what did God say and what did God mean when he gave it. I would say this morning that if you would be successful in preventing the bitter from turning to bitterness, then you must give every bitter thing to God. You must be determined that you're going to gain from every bitter lesson. And you must govern your life with every bitter thing behind you. If you don't, bitterness is coming. And if you're not willing, you're defeated already. But if you will, and if you'll die to self, then you will win the victory. And God will be glorified. There's not any sin that God can't forgive. There's not any problem that God can't fix. If we're dead to self, and the Spirit of God lives through us. Father, thank you for the time together this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to take your word.